There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Murder. The perfect family doesn't exist. No matter how perfect someone looks on the outside, there's always something less than perfect happening behind closed doors. Now, that doesn't always mean something horrible is happening. It just means that no one is ever truly perfect. On December 11th, 2003, a double murder would unleash the secrets that a perfect Texas family tried to keep private. So, if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Rick and Susanna Wamsley had it all. They were married just after Susanna graduated high school, had two children, Sarah and Andrew, and Rick entered into a career while Susanna created the perfect home life for her family in Mansfield, Texas. She was the kind of mom who had her son's favorite baked treat on hand at all times and ordered pizza when his friends filed in for a night of video games. They were kind, helpful to all they met, and revolved their lives around their children and their activities. And the Wamsleys were close with their neighbors, so much so that they celebrated the holiday seasons together with all of their kids. And this year, it was Susanna's turn to host. Everyone knew the home would be gorgeous, and they anxiously waited to see what she had in store for them. On December 9th, 2003, one of the neighbors stopped by to find Susanna trimming her tree and Rick putting the finishing touches on the outside of the home. But just a few days later, when neighbor Patty Clark arrived home around 9 p.m. on December 11th to find the Wamsley's Christmas lights were off, she grew a little weary. Thinking maybe the couple were just out for the evening, she retired into her own home. Her concern grew when, in the early morning hours of the 12th, her son came home to ask her why police cars were parked in front of Rick and Susanna's perfect home. Horrified, she listened on as an officer told her that the Wamsleys were found dead in their home. Apparently, someone inside of the home made a 911 call around 11.40 p.m., but either said nothing or put the phone down. When officers arrived four minutes later and knocked on the door, they got no response. Walking around the house, they found that the garage and the door leading into the house was open and went inside. Susanna was found lying on the living room couch with a shot through her left ear with a large caliber weapon and 18 stab wounds to her chest and neck. Rick, clad only in his boxers, was found shot in the face and back, as well as stabbed a number of times. There was no sign of a forced entry, and there seemed to be two sets of bloody shoe prints throughout the living room, dining room, and entryway. The murder, to say the least, shocked the neighborhood of Walnut Estates. Did the Wamsleys lose their lives to a pair of thieves looking to steal expensive Christmas gifts? Or was there a maniac living amongst them ready to pick a new victim? And if it was someone they knew, when would they strike again? Patty Clark, attempting to help any way she could, helped the police contact Sarah and Andrew Wamsley to deliver the devastating news. Of course, when police learned about the $100,000 cash and $1 million life insurance payoff were quickly added to the suspect list. When police were still at the scene, Andrew Wamsley and his girlfriend, Chelsea Richardson, drove up saying that they learned about the investigation on the news and came as quickly as they could. When police told them that they needed to go to the station for some questions, they went willingly. 
As they interrogated Andrew, police noticed how little emotion he was showing for someone who just lost his parents. He explained that he had last seen his mom and dad on December 9th when he asked their permission to go on a camping trip. They agreed, but the 19-year-old went to his girlfriend's house instead. Andrew allowed police to look at his vehicle, and when they did, they found large amounts of human blood that had been cleaned up. Meanwhile, both Andrew and his sister Sarah both agreed to polygraph tests. Sarah passed, but Andrew did not. As soon as this happened, all cooperation from both Andrew and Chelsea stopped. A month passed, and the police issued a subpoena for eight people asking them to submit DNA evidence. On that list was Andrew Wamsley, Chelsea Richardson, and Susanna Toldano, Chelsea's roommate. On April 5th, that DNA led to the arrest of 19-year-old Susanna, whose dyed hair matched a small clump found clutched inside the fist of Rick Wamsley. Her arrest would trigger a domino effect that ended with the arrest of Hilario Cardenas, a 24-year-old manager at a local IHOP, Chelsea Richardson, and then finally, Andrew Wamsley. Here is what happened and how it led to the deaths of Rick and Susanna Wamsley. Andrew and Sarah, from the outside, had a perfect life. But behind closed doors, Sarah was dealing with the bipolar diagnosis at 16 and time in and out of psychiatric facilities before finally getting kicked out in 1997. And Andrew was impulsive, immature, sometimes violent, and mentioned to friends often how much he hated his father. One confrontation between father and son even resulted in a domestic disturbance call to police, though no arrests were made. Andrew and Chelsea began dating back in January of 2003, much to his parents' disapproval. They viewed Chelsea as, according to sources, poor white trash, and felt their son deserved better. That same year, Andrew dropped out of college, was cut off by his parents, and basically began living at Chelsea's home to avoid seeing Rick and Susanna. The couple and their group of friends spent a lot of their time at the nearby IHOP where they would take up a table for hours playing role-playing card games. At some point, their games and banter turned into conversations centered around the murder of Andrew's parents and collection of their life insurance policies, which, of course, they would split within the group. It started out as simple, impersonal ways, such as cutting the brakes of the family car or shooting the gas tank and causing an explosion. In fact, the group made some attempts at tampering with the vehicle in the months leading up to the massacre, but ultimately, none succeeded. So, the restaurant planning quickly turned into a methodically planned out massacre of not just Rick and Susanna, but Sarah as well. In on the plan was Andrew, Chelsea, Susanna Toldano, and Hilario Cardenas. Hilario provided the gun, and Susanna was forced to go into the home and do the actual shooting. That, when Andrew, Chelsea, and Susanna entered the home early on December 11th, they found Susanna Wamsley asleep on the couch and shot her at close range in the head. Upon hearing the sound of a gunshot, Rick tried to run from the master bedroom and was shot from the doorway. Two shots missed, and Rick tried to fight his assailants. A struggle ensued in the hallway before the third bullet finally struck him. He kept fighting until someone grabbed a knife and finished the job. When they were sure Rick was dead, they went back to Susanna's body and stabbed it 18 times to make sure she was gone. 12 hours later, the 911 call was made and police arrived at the home. 
In order to avoid the death penalty, Susanna Toldano pleaded guilty, agreed to testify against Andrew and Chelsea, and received a life sentence with the possibility of parole after 30 years. Hilario Cardenas pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit murder and received a 50-year sentence with parole eligibility in 2014. He was later denied parole in both 2016 and 2017. Chelsea Richardson was convicted of capital murder after three hours of deliberation and became the first female sentenced to death in Tarrant County, though it was commuted to life in 2011. And finally, Andrew Wamsley, who planned the brutal murder of both his parents, was convicted of capital murder on March 5th, 2006. But because jurors didn't believe he was a future danger to society, he was sentenced to life in prison. He will be eligible for parole in 2044. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on December 12th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. Today's episode is sponsored by Wondery's new podcast, Death of a Starlet. I know that my listeners love true crime, and today I'm going to tell you about Death of a Starlet. Wondery's newest miniseries about Playboy Playmate of the Year, Dorothy Stratton, a series I think just might be your next obsession. In August of 1980, Dorothy Stratton was found dead in the home of her estranged husband, shot in the face at close range. She was just 20 years old, the girl next door with a shy smile and whispery voice who didn't know her own beauty. But Hugh Hefner did. To him, she was his next Marilyn Monroe. To famed Hollywood director Peter Bogdanovich, she was his dream starlet. And to her husband, Paul Snyder, she was his meal ticket to fortune and fame. These three ambitious men needed her. One of them murdered her. I'm about to play you a brief clip from the show, but while you're listening, be sure to subscribe to Death of a Starlet on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or if you want to binge all six episodes right now, join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. The link is in the show notes. Wondery, feel the story. Death of a Starlet by Hollywood and Crime contains depictions of violence and strong language. Please be advised. It's Thursday, August 14th, 1980, 11 p.m. Private detective Mark Goldstein sits alone in his car staring at a nondescript two-story house on a quiet street in West Los Angeles. The guy who lives in the house hired him to tail his wife. She's having an affair. Passing headlights reflect off the windshield and then fade away. Goldstein unrolls the window and a curl of cigarette smoke spirals into the night. He squints at the two cars in front of the house. They've been parked there since noon. The woman he's looking for must be in there. But what are they doing inside? That's the question Goldstein has been asking himself all day. The two roommates got back a few hours ago, and it's been completely quiet since then. At 11.30 p.m., Goldstein decides to do something he rarely does. 
Inside the house, Steve Kushner and his roommate Patty are sprawled out on opposite ends of the couch when they hear the phone ring. Patty answers, then passes it to Steve. Uh, Steve Kushner here. Steve doesn't know the caller is sitting in a car just outside the house. Uh, Kushner, it's Mark Goldstein. I need to speak to Paul. Is he there? Uh, Sorry, I haven't seen him all day. He's got to be in there. I'm looking at his car. Can you check? Kushner sighs, grabs his beer, and walks downstairs to Paul's bedroom. He doesn't come down here often. Paul Snyder likes his privacy, and lately Paul's been particularly moody. Kushner feels along the hallway for the light switch and flips it on. The door is closed. He presses his ear to the door. Nothing. Paul? You in there? There's a guy on the phone says he needs to talk to you. It's quiet. Paul? All right, I'm coming in. It takes a moment for his eyes to adjust. When they do, he's not sure what he's looking at. There's blood everywhere. On the wall. On the floor. Kushner's eyes open wide. There are two dead bodies, both of them nude. Is that Paul? The face is so mangled he can't tell, and there's a woman lying across the corner of the bed. Her head is almost unrecognizable through the gore. Then he sees the long blonde hair. Oh, God. He turns and bumps into Patty. Jesus, don't, don't, don't go in there. Fifteen minutes later, Private Detective Mark Goldstein stands in the living room. The phone cradled in the crook of his shoulder while he smokes. Kushner sits on the couch with his head in his hands. The other roommate, Patty, is curled up in an armchair, staring at the TV with vacant eyes. The police are on their way. Goldstein is now waiting to speak to someone else who needs to know what's happened. Finally, he hears the man's voice on the other end. He takes a breath. Mr. Hefner? It's Mark Goldstein. I'm a private detective. I've been working for Paul Snyder. Uh, Listen, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, Mr. Hefner. I'm really sorry. It's about one of your playmates, Dorothy Stratton. When he's done speaking, there's a long pause. Then the line goes dead. Less than 12 hours later, what Goldstein tells Hugh Hefner will be all over the news. Playboy magazine's 1980 Playmate of the Year has been found shot to death. What nobody knows yet is why. Why?